0: We're all squared away. Had a, a, a little letter here from one of our tapers. Sent a note with the tape order to to uh, address it to myself and Jim, and said, "You're all doing a great job. I appreciate the work and provision. Are, the, uh, the work and provision you are supplying to the Saints, we need it." And y'all are providing, must be a southerner. Don't ease up for a minute, the stinking woolies are hungry. That's sheep, if it. So we are getting good response from a number of people who are on the tapes. Well, you just can't trust me at all tonight. Not even any paper towels up here. Ken, would you I just spilled a glass of water up here. Would you grab me some paper towel? I'm being a klutz. Started off when I had to print the overhead I want to use tonight. I had to print it four times because the printer just couldn't quite get it right. It's one of those days the angelic conflict is working overtime wanted to tell everybody that uh, you ought to be proud of yourselves, I'm proud of you, and not because of what any anything that I've had any part of, but just in talking with Tommy after the first or second night, I was asking him some questions, wanted him to clarify a couple of things, and he commented, he said, you know, I just don't get the opportunity to talk to a, a church where there are as many people who are as well informed about a lot the issues and understand the Bible as much as this congregation. You really are above normal in terms of your understanding, comprehension, background of a lot of issues. Which is um, not that I'm making a backhanded compliment here, but it's sort of a sad state of affairs in terms of because uh, Tommy goes and speaks in churches all over the all over the country, and usually he does a presentation like that and people are just absolutely flabbergasted because they've never heard any of that before and the vocabulary is all new and they have no concept. And I think that at least the first couple of nights there was a lot of review and I don't take credit for that. It's just a sign that Ron did an excellent job in the 22 years he was here and uh, communicated a lot and prepared you well. So... Uh, I'm very proud of that and you and how well you uh, handle things with the whole conference. So we'll be doing that some more. Thanks. I would ask you to give me some water, but after the last time I asked someone in the congregation (laughs) (coughs) to give me some water, I think I'll just rather go thirsty. Okay, I think we've got all the electronics squared away and taken care of, so with that let's make sure we're ready for a study of God's Word, bow our heads together, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship and then we'll begin. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for the privilege and opportunity that we have to fellowship around the teaching of Your Word. We thank You for its perspicacity. Thank You for the Holy Spirit who makes these things clear and lucid to us and helps us to understand how these principles apply in our own lives. Father, we pray that we can be challenged by the things that we study, that we would respond positively because we understand the importance of advancing to spiritual maturity, both for its impact in time And eternity. So now we open your word and we pray that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles with me to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. You left out the salt. Well, that was gracious of you. Too kind. We have seen that the main idea in James I keep trying out some of these different pens. Okay, is Perseverance well, it just doesn't get much I keep trying. Okay, this is better. Perseverance in Applying Doctrine and Tests. Now, as James organizes his thinking, he has three sections. We're to be quick to hear. That's listening to God's Word and applying doctrine in our lives. Then we are to be slow to speak and slow to anger. The speaking deals with the fact that in this congregation, apparently, there were various sins of the tongue that was causing disruption in the congregation, but it has its source in mental attitude sins, as exemplified by anger, which James uses to represent the whole array of mental attitude sins, especially bitterness and jealousy and envy. And so, we have made our way through the first section, hearing and doing, which is amount to faith and works. And now we are in the second section which deals with speaking. Last time we started in James 3, one through, th- and we got down into verse 2. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, because you know, and there we saw, saw that that was a causal, an adverbial participle of cause from oida, because you know that as such, that is, as teachers, we shall incur a stricter judgment. Now, as James lays out his case here, he warns in these first five verses that not many should be teachers. We always have to go back to the main idea, and that is that we're dealing with endurance in times of tests. And it's very easy for believers, especially in this particular congregation, but it's true around the world that we focus on hearing and in arrogance, we think that because we have a lot of gnosis doctrine in, our, in the mentality of our soul that somehow we are advanced and we can help people. We know the answers to their problems. And it's very easy for this then to lead to judging. And last time we saw that judging leads to triple compound divine discipline. You get judged because you get disciplined from the Lord, number one, because you are judging. Number two, you get discipline from the Lord because of the mental attitude attitude, sin of arrogance, which is the motivation for the judging. And three, you get discipline for the sin that you are judging the other believer about. So whenever you get involved in gossip, slander, maligning, things like that, then you incur a stricter judgment. We also saw that James emphasizes the fact that uh, the, a warning to teachers that not many should become teachers because anybody who teaches will incur a higher level of discipline. Now we get down to where are we? We get down to verse two. Let me find myself here. It's rather, for some reason, it seems like the afternoon has turned into one disorganization after another. So I'm trying to find out where things should be. And they don't seem to be here. Okay. Now I know where I am. James is talking in the first verse, he says, Let not many of you become teachers, because you know that as such you shall incur stricter judgment. And then he begins verse 2 with the particle gar. G-A-R. And gar for the most part usually introduces not simply a reason, but a cause. And so here we ought to translate that, because. And he is going to give the cause for the stricter judgment. And the cause, he says, because we all stumble in many ways. And that applies to the warning, not the stricter judgment. Let not many of you become teachers. Why? Because we all stumble in many ways. Even teachers, even men who have the gift of pastor-teacher are not infallible and not inerrant. And they're going to make uh, many mistakes. Now... When he starts this off, he gives the reason, because we all stumble in many ways. And the verb that he uses is the present active indicative, third person plural, of ptaio. P-T-A-I-O. It means to uh, err. It means to stumble. It means to fall. And here, it means To sin, it is a synonym, a synonym for sin. I try to use a pun just seeing if anybody's there this evening. A synonym, I'll move on. It's a present active indicative. Now the reason we stop and we parse out a verb is because each aspect, plays a role. Not every time, but I try to point it out when it does. The present tense can be used in a number of different ways. And here it is what is called a gnomic present tense, which emphasizes a statement of a general timeless fact. We all stumble. We all sin in many ways. Every one of us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every believer continues to possess a sin nature from the moment of their salvation. Regeneration does not eradicate the sin nature. Here is a diagram of the sin nature. You have two different poles, opposites. One, the area of strength which produces human good. This is the area where you are least likely to sin, where you have your strongest resistance to temptation. Then at the opposite pole is the area of weakness where we commit personal sins. This is the area where we are most, where we most easily succumb to sin. Now the sin nature is the source of temptation, but it is not the source of sin. The source of sin is our volition. The sin nature tempts us, and when we respond positively to the temptation that derives from the sin nature, then we commit sin. We saw that earlier, the dynamics of that earlier in James chapter 1 that the sin nature joins with our volition and produces sin and the result is death. carnal death where we are cut off temporarily as believers from the uh, fellowship with God and the source for the spiritual life. We're no longer walking by means of the Holy Spirit as we've been studying in Galatians 5:17 and following, but we are now operating on the power of of the sin nature. So, we start off with personal sins, and once we commit a personal sin, then the sin nature is in control, and we can react with human good, and try to show contrition, try to show how sorry we are for our sin, but that doesn't always work, because it's still coming from the sin nature. And even though the area of strength produces morality, it has its source in the sin nature, and one of the most important things to deal with in the spiritual life is one of the most important questions to ask is how do we know the difference between human morality done in the power of the flesh and divine good which is done under the power of God the Holy Spirit and that's where First John 1 9 comes in because that is the mechanism by which we shift from the power of the sin nature back to the filling of the Holy Spirit through confession of sin. When we, when we sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit, we quench the Holy Spirit, and it is not until that personal sin is dealt with. Remember in the Psalms it says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. So we have to uh, confess our sins, admit, acknowledge our sins, and then the Lord cleanses us completely from those sins. They're wiped out. They're removed from us, the Scripture says, as far as the east is from the west, and God will remember them no more. They no longer affect our relationship, our day-to-day walk with the Lord. So this is a sin nature. Now, under the category of personal sins, we produce three categories of sins. Overt sins, sins of the tongue, and mental attitude sins. Mental attitude sins tend to be the motivation, the underlying sins behind both sins of the tongue and overt sins and the subject at hand in chapter 3 is sins of the tongue and James says we all stumble literally we are actually he is saying we all sin in many different ways so this is a statement of timeless fact it is in the active voice I said it's a present active active means that the subject Performs the action of the verb. So the subject performs the action of the verb, and here it is a plural subject. James includes himself in the warning. Every believer, himself included, he's no more perfect than the rest of us. We all have a sin nature. It's not taken away at salvation. This is something that has confused a lot of people over the ages, not to mention a lot of um, a lot of theologians there are, there's one school that teaches that there is only one nature and at the moment of salvation what happens in regeneration the old man is actually crucified with Christ so the sin nature the sin nature is no longer as powerful as it was it's, there are certain things you're just not going to be able to do after salvation and that's false That is completely false, and it leads to a heretical doctrine known as perfectionism. And to me, one of the surprising contradictions in history, and all theologians have them, is that one of the best books ever written against the whole doctrine of perfectionism was written by a very famous theologian down at Princeton by the name of Benjamin Breckinridge Warfield. Yet Warfield in his Reformed theology, now not all Calvinists and not all Reformed theologians hold to a one nature view, but but, um, Warfield did. So the only difference between Warfield and a perfectionist was that uh, the perfectionist thought that you could get there in this life and Warfield just thought you just kept getting more and more perfect but you never really got there in this life. That was his inconsistency. We always have a sin nature. We always struggle with the sin nature. We will always have the uh, potential of failing miserably. There's no sin that an unbeliever can commit that you can't commit as a believer. And you may get to a point because of rejection of doctrine, because of the weaknesses of your own sin nature, where you commit some sin that shocks you, that shocks all your friends, shocks your family... But yet, you're still a believer. And even if you continue in that sin, even if you continue in the most perverse degradations known to mankind, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are still a believer. Regeneration does not destroy the sin nature. Regeneration gives you a human spirit. At the moment of regeneration, God the Father... Or excuse me, God the Holy Spirit creates and imparts to you a human spirit. That is what is born again. That's what regeneration refers to is a second birth. So, regeneration, you are born again. Well, what is it that is born again? It is that which was lost at the sin of Adam. And that is the human spirit. That has nothing to do with the sin nature. The sin nature was acquired by Adam when he sinned, but it is a separate category from the loss of the sin nature. They are related. There is a cause and effect. But the second birth, the regeneration, simply brings us a human spirit so that we can have a relationship with the Lord. The active voice means that the believer performs the action. Any and every believer can sin... And this emphasizes the personal volition and individual responsibility for all of our sins. If you get involved in sin, where the sin nature controls you and you stay in extended carnality, what the Bible calls being backslidden, and let's say instead of taking the trend towards asceticism and legalism and ending up in moral degeneracy, you go in this direction and you Uh, or have a trend towards antinomianism, licentiousness, and lasciviousness, you will end up in immoral degeneracy, something like the prodigal son. Now, this is easy for many believers to understand. Many people can understand immoral degeneracy. But most people have a hard time understanding the concept of moral degeneracy. And yet, that's exactly the situation with the Pharisees. They were very moral. And yet, as far as the Lord was concerned, they were degenerate. He said that, that unless our righteousness exceeded that of the scribes and the Pharisees, and by that he wasn't saying that, that they didn't have any. He was saying that they had an excessive amount. He recognized that. It was overt. It was superficial. But it was not the kind of righteousness that, that would gain prestige with God or gain the approval of God. So you can also be a moral degenerate. But if you stay over here in immoral degeneracy past a certain amount of time in life, then then all of that outside pressure that you're converting into stress in the soul is going to have its consequences in your mental health. And eventually, because of a series of bad decisions that you make, you may end up quite neurotic and you may end up psychotic. You may hallucinate. You may think that you're hearing the Lord speak to you. You may have all kinds of delusions. That is the result of a series of volitional choices you have made. So if you get to the point where you are so caught up in immoral degeneracy that you commit a crime, you pull out a pistol and you shoot somebody, you cannot claim uh, that you're crazy and that uh, that somehow absolves you from responsibility insanity is no excuse you wanted to do it and you did it even ignorance is no excuse you wanted to do it and you did it so you're responsible so there's no such thing biblically as a plea of insanity there's no such thing biblically as a plea of ignorance you want to do a sin you do it you're responsible that's the thrust of the active voice then it's in the indicative mood which is the mood of reality And, of course, it's a third person plural, so James includes himself in this. This is a very serious warning to anyone who aspires to be a teacher for five reasons. First of all, teachers handle the inerrant, infallible Word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that the Word of God, that that all Scripture is God-breathed. Literally, that is the Word theopneustos. T-H-E-O-P-N-E-U-S-T-O-S. And that is a combination of the word for breath and God. He is the active one involved in in the process. God is here, and God exhaled doctrine into the mentality of the writers of Scripture. And then, without destroying their own personality, their own particular style, their own background, their own vocabulary their own interests, they exhaled, they in, as God exhaled this into them, they were inhaling, and then they exhaled doctrine to the pages of Scripture and wrote it down. And God so governed the entire process that He was able to guarantee that what they actually wrote was free from all error. And this is the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture. And there's a vast difference between starting with an an inerrant document and starting with an errant document. Because if there are mistakes, the issue is how many? And one person says there's 50 and another person says there's 500 and who's going to decide what's true and what's false? And that's the problem of modern uh, Christianity and the problem of modern theology is they've thrown out the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture and without that, you have nothing but uncertainty, and it's just a matter of human opinion as to what really is where the word of God is really contained in the Scripture. Now, because you are a teacher, you handle the inerrant and infallible Word of God, so this is a very serious responsibility. Secondly, as a teacher, you are responsible to communicate truth, eternal truth, the truth of Scripture, not opinion. And it's very important for teachers to make sure that they don't find something in the Scripture that just substantiates their own opinion. You have to make sure that you are doing exegesis, which is deriving truth out of Scripture, and not eisegesis, which is reading your opinion into Scripture. So it's very important to learn and to be honest with ourselves as to just exactly what our own views and opinions are, so that we can have objectivity when we come to study of the Word of God. And, of course, objectivity is the result of years of study of doctrine. It doesn't happen overnight. Only as you take in the Word of God do you get to a point where you are honest with yourselves. You're not yielding to self-deception, which is one of the arrogant skills, and so that you can discern the difference between what the Word of God teaches and your opinion. Now, in many cases, as you grow and mature those will coincide but there are times when we have certain opinions and we have to make sure that we're not teaching those but we are teaching the truth of the word of God third there is always the temptation for teachers to become subjective in times of testing so that when you as a teacher are going through times of testing in your own life It is very easy for you to become subjective and to start seeing, looking at the Scriptures through the limitations of your own experiences. So it's important for anyone who is handling the Word of God to have developed a certain stage of objectivity so that they can rise above their own culture, rise above their own background, rise above their own personal prejudices and biases and likes and dislikes so that they can have true objectivity when it comes to the Word of God. And this is true for any pastor. If you're sitting down and you're studying God's Word, you have a very high responsibility as a pastor to make sure that you are communicating what is in the Word of God. And that means that when you're sitting at your desk and nobody's around, You have to be honest with what the Word of God says and not just run and hide from it. But that, unfortunately, is what some people do. You can't be subjective. You can't let the Word of God be limited by your own background, your own experiences, your own subjective emotions. Fourth, teachers need to learn their own cultural biases and limitations and not read those into the text of Scripture. I think the classic example we have today is that we are living in what um, one particular church historian has called the psychotherapeutic age. That's how he defines the post-World War II era. We're in the the psychotherapeutic age, the age of psychology. And we are all imbued to one degree or another with psychological terminology. Just think about it and think back and see if you've used any words like victimization or self-image or anything like that in the last week. That's just one indication of how you have picked up to one degree or another. We've all been affected by this in our society. Now, the classic example today is people who have degrees in psychology or you go to seminary. I think one of the worst courses I had to take was one on pastoral counseling. And, uh, and psychotherapy, and that was taught by a couple of uh, well-known, nationally known uh, psychologists and psychiatrists at Dallas Seminary, and it was one of the worst courses I ever had. It seemed like these two men had gone through a lot of navigator training and memorized the, uh, the basic uh, uh, navigator system of uh Scripture verses, the topical memory system. And so they were taking all of their psychological principles and they were just reaching over here wherever they found a scripture verse that sounded like it supported that particular principle and they would just sort of attach it. So they would give all these principles and cite these proof texts that allegedly supported their uh, psychotherapeutic view of reality. And yet if you stopped and exegeted through those passages you would discover that they really, in most cases, had absolutely nothing to do with psychotherapy or counseling or relationships or anything, any other psychological buzzword. But that's what people are doing today, is they are reading, they're putting on a set of cultural glasses, whether it's psychotherapy or whether it's uh, Marxism or whether it's liberalism or socialism or whatever it is, they put on those glasses and then they open the pages of Scripture. Another classic example is feminism. And I've been doing some study on, uh, in preparation for this pastor's conference where I'll be speaking in October. One of the ma- major issues is going to be the, on the role of women in ministry and whether or not you can have women pastors. And so we're going to be exegeting those passages. So I've been uh, boning up on what the feminists say about the role of women in marriage and in the church and in society. And it's amazing how they put on those, those cultural glasses and the funniest things that they read and see in the Scriptures. Rather than letting the Scriptures speak for themselves, they, they read their own cultural biases then into the Scriptures. So teachers need to learn what their own cultural biases are and avoid reading those into the text. And then fifth, we need to realize, as James states here, there is a greater judgment to those who teach the Word. Now, the key phrase that we need to focus on here, related to the use of the, of the tongue and sins of the tongue, is self-mastery. James is saying that it is clear that as we advance to spiritual maturity... The key evidence is that we master what we say. We, don't, we no longer succumb as easily to foot and mouth disease. We master what we say and we keep our mouth shut. This is the second, verse, second sentence in verse 2. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able to bridle the whole body as well. It starts off with E-I in the Greek, A, which is your particle of conditionality, expresses a conditional clause. In this case, it's a first-class condition. A first-class condition that assumes the reality of the protasis. That's the first part of the sentence. If anyone does not stumble, and what James is saying here is if anyone does not stumble, and we're going to assume that such a person exists, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. And the word here for perfect is a word that should be familiar to all of us, Telios, which means mature. T-E-L-E-I-O-S. A mature believer. So James is going to give evidence that self-control, and remember, and you'll see this in a couple of weeks when we get into the fruit or the production of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5, that self-control, self-discipline, self-mastery is a production of the Holy Spirit. Now this doesn't mean that you go out and you just... Get involved in some kind of a program where you learn to control yourself through the power of the flesh. Anybody can learn a certain degree of self-discipline. If you're in the military, you have learned and acquired a certain level of self-discipline. There are many people who discipline their body. Perhaps this comes under the category of asceticism as a trend in the sin nature. Asceticism involves giving up many pleasures, many overt pleasures, physical pleasures, thinking that somehow that impresses God and that by giving up those pleasures it's a sign of spiritual maturity. Well, it's just another area of confusion and asceticism has nothing to do with spirituality. You have to discern the difference between self-discipline that's a product of the flesh and self-mastery which is a production of of the Holy Spirit. And that means that as you walk by the Holy Spirit, there are going to be certain results displayed in your life that the Holy Spirit produces. It's not because you set out to control yourself. When I was about fourth grade, I think, my dad showed me a sheath knife, utility knife that he had, a k-bar knife that he carried with him when he went into the first wave on Iwo Jima. And he told me that back in those days, I don't know if they do this anymore, but back in those days, not only did you get graded in certain subjects in school, but there were also certain character evaluations on the other side of the report card. And one of those was self-discipline. And if I could get a plus in self-discipline, then I could have that knife. And I think I was in the sixth grade before I finally got my hands on that knife, Now, anybody can do that in the flesh, but what we're talking about here is doing it under the power of the Holy Spirit, and the greatest example is when you can control your mouth. And there's too many people that when they start going through times of testing, it becomes evident through the sins of the tongue in one way or the other. Either because they get mad and angry and out of their mouth spews all kinds of of vile things, or they start gossiping about somebody else. If it's a people test, then they start blaming somebody else, running them down, and you hear all sorts of bitter things. So James is using this, the control of the tongue, control of the mouth, as a sign of a person who has truly achieved spiritual maturity. Now James isn't condemning here. He is warning us against the dangers of the tongue. He's not advocating silence. He's advocating self-mastery. So he is emphasizing that control of the tongue is the quintessence of spiritual maturity and self-mastery. And to do that, he is saying, this is his thesis, that if you are mature, if you can control your mouth, then you will be able to master all other areas of testing and temptation in the life. And he gives... Two different illustrations of this in verse 3 is one and verse 4 is the other. Verse 3 we read, Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they may obey us, we direct their entire body as well. So the first example has to do with a horse. And being from Texas, I've spent my many a time on the back of a horse. And a horse can be a very strong animal, can be a very headstrong animal. And you have to control a horse. They can get away with you. I remember one time when I was uh, up in Arkansas one summer, and I had to take a herd of about five or six horses down from the valley up up the hills, about 20 miles up into the Ozarks to get ready for a, for a wilderness camp. And in the midst of that, encountered a horrendous thunderstorm, lightning and thunder, and just scared the horses to death, scared me to death, uh, riding through the forest. And um, the horses took off and I had to, uh, after they stampeded, and I had to spend most of the night wandering around in a thunderstorm trying to regather the horses and that was not a lot of fun. But what this is talking about is that you can have this powerful creature who has his own will and yet that horse is controlled by just a very small piece of metal that is placed in the mouth that's the most tender part of a horse all the area around the gum and the lips is very tender and just a slight amount of pressure on that bit in the horse's mouth and that horse will instantly respond to the wishes and desires of the rider of the master so the illustration of the horse is that this large, heavy animal that's very strong is mastered through the control of one small instrument. Through that, the entire body is directed and controlled. Verse 4, we have the second example which has to do with a ship. Behold, ships also, though they are so great and driven by strong winds, no matter how large they are, and of course in James thinking he is looking at a sailboat because that's what, a sailing ship. that's what they had at that time. The, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, and you can imagine what it's like to be out on a small lake like the sea, or a large lake like the Sea of Galilee or out on the um, uh, Long Island Sound or out on the ocean and have a 40, 50, 60 mile an hour wind come up where you're dealing with uh, 40, 50-foot waves. Several years ago, there was a major storm that occurred off the New England coast, and a man wrote a book about it called The Perfect Storm. And during that, they they measured waves that were in excess of 110 feet. You can imagine what it would be like considering the average commercial fishing vessel is probably only 70 or 80 feet in length. Can you imagine what a wind like that and what waves like that could do to a ship of that size and yet in spite of the strength of the winds of course when you get into excessive winds like that it's a different issue but if it's not too dangerous no matter how strong the winds that ship is controlled by just a relatively small piece of wood the rudder and so in both of these illustrations, what James is saying is that the tongue, though it's small like the bit in a horse's mouth or a rudder on a ship, has impact far beyond its size. Thus every believer needs to master the tongue. Once you say something you can never take it back. You tell a lie, you, you uh, gossip about somebody, even if it's true. Because truth has nothing to do with discerning whether or not something is gossip. Gossip has to do with spreading information to people who are not immediately involved in the situation. I had a situation this last week when, when Tommy was here and we were talking about something, and and I remembered that we were um, discussing a particular individual, and and it came into my mind that uh, a particular failure of this individual several years ago and obviously Tommy wasn't aware of it and I thought well that doesn't contribute the Lord's forgiven him and he's moved on it's not anybody's business to uh, bring up things that have happened in somebody's past and even if it's true and even if it might contribute something to the conversation gossip is communicating information to one person about somebody else when it's not any of your business what they did and neither one of you are involved in either the problem or the solution to that problem. And that's, that's what gossip is. It doesn't matter whether it's true or false. The issue is, it's not any of your business. It's not any of the other person's business. And so we need to learn to keep our mouths shut. A lot of times, people have failures. As James just said, we all sin in many different ways. And once the Lord has forgiven somebody, and that's not an issue, we need to let those failures uh, die off we need to forget about them and just as the Lord has forgotten and we need to move on we need to control our mouths so what James is saying is the tongue though it is small it has impact far beyond its size thus every believer needs to master the tongue his point is that if you control the bit you control the horse if you control the rudder you control the ship so if you control your tongue you control your mouth, you can control other areas in your life. Proverbs has a lot to say about sins of the tongue. Proverbs 10:19 says when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. You see there are some people that their response to stress, or excuse me, their response to adversity is to talk a lot especially in prayer meeting. They start talking about this, and you hear it especially times when a couple may be going through trouble, and all of a sudden somebody, the wife or the husband, uh, is under a lot of pressure, and they're not very happy. And so, under the guise of prayer requests, they begin to communicate a lot of information that should be kept private. And often you hear this, and it's a great sign of disrespect to their spouse. In fact, if you go through certain problems or just about any kind of problem in marriage, one of the most important things you can do is keep your mouth shut. Because if the problem is resolved and you have, and the marriage is put back together, now all these other people know these terrible things that took place in the marriage. And now you've really created a lot of trouble. I've known of situations where there were marriage problems and because one spouse or the other started uh, blabbering about it to everybody, it created an even worse situation that put so much pressure on the other person that it ended up destroying the marriage and making recovery almost impossible because of all the social pressure that was brought to bear in the situation. So it's important. I'm not saying you shouldn't tell anybody about it. Perhaps you have a close friend that you can trust or someone uh, who's a little more mature spiritually that you can uh, talk with and get some spiritual advice from. But basically, you don't go around telling everybody. You don't blab it in prayer meeting so that everybody in the church finds out that your, your wife is drunk or your husband is running around on you. So now everybody knows about it. And it really intensifies the whole situation until now. It's about 20 times worse than it ever was. And, and now instead of one problem to solve, you've got 20 problems to solve. Now, along with that, now everybody else knows your spouse's problems. So they'll think about it and have mental attitude sins of judging. And so now you've created a real mess. So we need to learn to keep our mouths shut when there are many words Transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Self-mastery of the mouth, Proverbs 10.19. Proverbs 13.3, the one who guards his mouth preserves his life. The one who guards his mouth preserves his life. The one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Proverbs 21.23, he who guards his mouth and his tongue guards his soul from troubles. This is the same thing that James is saying. We need to learn to master our mouth and not just start letting it run away with us because we are in some kind of test or pressure situation. Some people just like to talk to hear themselves time you never know what's going to come out of their mouth and I've been around people like that and I'm sure that some of you have as well and you just really hope they don't know too much about you because then when they start running off at the mouth and they engage the mouth with what my mother used to call diarrhea of the mouth and constipation of the brain and they quit thinking about what they're saying anything can come out and you don't want things that you want kept private being spread around by someone like that. So it's important to master the mouth. James says in verse four, or excuse me in verse five at the conclusion, "Behold how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire." Verse three is the illustration of the bit in the horse's mouth. Verse four is the illustration of the rudder on a ship, and the analogy is brought out in verse 5. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. It can do many things, both for good and for ill. And the conclusion, how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. It just takes a spark or two to ignite the tender which sets tens of thousands of acres on fire. And once you say something, You make some comment, oh, don't you remember when so-and-so did such-and-such, then all of a sudden it starts getting out and one person tells another and before long you've assassinated somebody's character, you've ruined their reputation, and you've created an enormous amount of difficulty for that person. And this happens in congregations. I think it can happen in some ways much more in small congregations because Everybody's a little more intimate. Everybody can look around the room here. And if you've been here for a year or two, you might be able to name everybody in the congregation. And some of you have been here a lot longer and you know where some bodies are buried. And you need to, you need to keep those bodies buried and you need to keep those closet doors shut. Because nobody, you don't like anybody reminding someone else of your failures. And other people don't like you reminding anyone else of their failures so we need to keep control of our of our mouth you never ever repeat gossip even if it is true psalm 101:5 says whoever secretly slanders his neighbor him i will destroy it's the lord speaking there whoever secretly slanders his neighbor him i will destroy no one has a haughty look and an arrogant heart will i endure and that ties the sin of the tongue of gossip and slander arrogance and pride. Proverbs 10.18 He who conceals hatred has lying lips. And that means if you hate somebody and you lie about it, you're deceiving somebody, then it's calling you a liar. And he who spreads slander is a fool. The Bible just doesn't mince words. You're spreading gossip. You're spreading slander about someone. You're a fool. A perverse man spreads strife and the slanderer separates intimate friends. And then Proverbs 20.19, He who goes about as a slanderer reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with a gossip. That's clear advice from Scripture. Don't have anything to do with someone is a gossip. The point is that the tongue is small and the body is large and life has many facets to it. And with all of the damage that can be done to another uh, human being, there it all can be done with this small part of the body, the tongue. The tongue is the greatest weapon that we have. It can be a source of blessing, and it can be a source of condemnation and destruction. It all depends ultimately on what is in your soul. What is it that controls the tongue? In your soul, you either have... Human viewpoint or divine viewpoint in control. If it's human viewpoint, then you've converted the outside pressure of adversity to the inside pressure of stress in the soul, and you're under the control of the sin nature. If divine viewpoint, then you are operating under the filling of God the Holy Spirit, and you are walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. But in each situation, you can either be positive and apply doctrine, or you can be negative when you operate on the power of the sin nature. And the issue is that, that what comes out of your mouth is going to reveal whether you are operating on human viewpoint or divine viewpoint. And this is what James is going to point out in the coming verses. Now we come down to verse 6. And James says, the tongue is a fire. He's just used that illustration. And now he says, the tongue is a fire. It is the very world of iniquity. Now, here he uses a very interesting phrase. He uses the word cosmos. K O S M O S. Cosmos refers to several things in the scriptures. It can refer to the inhabited world, for example, in John 3.16, God so loved the world, the inhabited world. It can also refer, refer to Satan's system of thinking. But it also has the meaning of order and adornment. That's the idea underlying the word cosmetics, which we derive from the Greek word kosmos, because it has to do with adornment. It has to do with order. That's uh, what a woman does. She puts her face on. She organizes and orders her face through the use of cosmetics, through the use of makeup. So, kosmos here refers to that idea of adornment and organization that is related to the genitive of description here, adikios, adikos, a d i k o s, which refers to, literally it means wrongdoing. It is not a word for an unbeliever. It is a word for wrongdoing, and it is used in a verse that should be familiar to all of us: First John one nine. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The A is the alpha privative, the first letter, it's like the English U-N. And dikas comes from the noun dike, meaning righteousness. But it basically means wrongdoing or unrighteousness. So it is, in this passage, the tongue is a fire, the organization or system of unrighteousness. It represents all levels of unrighteousness or wrongdoing. 1 John 5.17 says that all adikios, all unrighteousness, is sin. So this is just another way of talking about sin. The sin that is generated and related to sins of the tongue. And then James says, the tongue is set among our members... "...as that which defiles the entire body." So that the sins of the tongue are particularly devastating because they affect the entire body. Not just the physical body, but the body of Christ, the congregation. And that's the context here. They're in the midst of testing. As they yield to the temptation to sin in this area, it is devastating the entire congregation and causing, as we will see in chapter 4 quarrels and conflicts and all sorts of division in the body. And then James goes on to say, it sets on fire the course of our life and that refers to every category of life so that the sins of the tongue are dynamic in that they affect every arena of life, the entire course of our life and it in turn is set on fire by Gehenna. Here the word that is translated hell is not the word Hades. It is the word Gehenna. Translate G-E-H-E-N-N-A. Gehenna comes from the Hebrew word Gehenna. G-E-H-I-N-N-O-M. That refers to the Valley of Hinnom, which was a deep, narrow valley just to the south of Jerusalem. Originally, it was the site where when the fire gods of Baalim and Molech were introduced by Ahaz, this is where the Jews, as they succumbed to idolatry, would sacrifice their children, would place them in the fire to Molech. This is where they would take a child offered in sacrifice. They would build these huge fires inside this um, this idol, and it would just reach a roaring intensity. And then the idol was shaped in such a way as he, having extended arms. This is where the flames would come up between its arms, and they would place their infant as a child sacrifice on the arms of Molech, and it would be consumed in the flames. Now after the reforms of Josiah, when this idolatry was stopped, they turned the Valley of Hinnom into the garbage dump for Jerusalem. And it was, a, as I said, it's a large, narrow valley. They would toss the bodies of criminals there. They would toss the carcasses of animals there. They would take all of the garbage and refuse from the city out there, and there they would incinerate it and burn it, so that it was continually aflame. There were continual continually coals there, it was continually burning. And because of that imagery, because the fire never went out, it became a symbol for the future torment and judgment of all unbelievers. So it is basically a synonym for the lake of fire. And so here James, by saying that, that the tongue defiles the entire body, it also sets on fire every area, every category of life, and it in turn is set on fire by hell. In other words, as a product of the sin nature, all the sins of the tongue promote the agenda of Satan. We have already seen its relationship indicated or inferred at least by the use of cosmos. That the sins of the tongue and the sin nature go along with the agenda of Satan so that all sin... Is related to the ultimate sin of arrogance in Satan. And then in verse 7 and 8, he will go on to describe the difficulty of mastering the tongue. We don't have time to get into that this evening, but we will next time. We'll wrap up this particular section and then we will categorize what the Scripture says about the sins of the tongue. So next time we'll probably conclude down to verse 12, and then we'll summarize the scriptural teaching on the sins of the tongue with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You for the clarity of Scripture, that when we talk about particular sins, especially the sins of the tongue, gossip, maligning, slander, uh, blasphemy, many other things, we understand that these things communicate to each one of us, Because as James indicates here, it is only the very mature that ever comes close to complete mastery of the mouth. So Father, we pray that You would help us to remember the things that we have learned to see how they apply in our own lives that we may utilize this and the Holy Spirit might utilize this in our spiritual growth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.